Last week, we started this conversation about how nobody's perfect. And we talked about laws. I had umbrellas, if you remember, and I held them over and I said, we're all under some law. And here's what we know about every law we're under. None of us are able to keep the law perfectly. And here's how I challenged that with you last week. I said, listen, some of you, the only laws that you're under are the laws that your parents gave you, the rules your parents gave you. And you managed to somehow not keep those laws perfectly. Some of you, the only laws that you're under are the laws of your conscience, the choices that you make, the decision. And your conscience has said, I'll never do that again, or I'll never eat that, or I'll never go there, or I'll never whatever that is. Yet somehow, we didn't manage to honor the laws of our conscience. Some of us uh, are, are in relationship with Jesus and we, and we look at the scripture and we say there's laws in there and there's boundaries that we're supposed to keep, but we've not been able to do it perfectly. Some of us, the only law you recognize is the constitutional laws, things like, I don't know, the speed limit. And you've not managed to do it perfectly. And so we recognize that because none of us can keep the law perfectly, we all find ourselves in a mess. And last week, we really pressed into this reality that if we're all in a mess, a couple things are true. One, we all need help. Two, we have no leverage to go judging somebody else's mess because we're in a mess also. And so we're going to push into this idea of, uh, of great, huge messes uh, today. And today I'm going to speak uh, particularly to those of us who find ourselves in a mess of our own making, and so I'm going to get us into a mess right now because I'm going to show us a, a video clip. Now, this is from America's Funniest Home Videos. And so, uh, and so I want you to catch this, that, that this is funny and it's a mess. But, uh, but also just remember, if you've never seen America's Funniest Home Videos, then you probably haven't had a TV for the last 20 years because it has been on nonstop for at least about 20 years. The problem with it is because it has about 20 years, the videos that you see sometimes are like on old camcorders that like sit on your shoulder that, uh, <laughs> that we used to have VHS types and stuff. And so the quality is not always the best, but take a look, have some fun. Here's some good messes. Awesome. <laughs> for some of you, I'll be getting an email. I'm in a mess for showing the video, but no, I'm teasing. I just, uh, I thought that was really funny and it had me thinking about some of the incredible messes that I've either been a part of or witnessed over the years. Now, it's funny because my son is sitting here in the front row and he doesn't know I'm going to tell a story about one of his messes. And so, <laughs> which one do you think? Yeah, you know which one. So, we have moved to Oregon at this point, and we're living in a house that was built in 1853. It's called the Heritage House. It is a house that literally, if you ever played the Oregon Trail game, the Gray family survived the Oregon Trail game. They forded the river. They didn't get uh, cholera or diphtheria or whatever area. They, they shot the buffalo. They made it to Oregon, and they built this house in 1853. We lovingly called it the shack because it was built on rocks and, and not foundation. And it, you could walk upstairs and downstairs. I mean, uphill and downhill, not stairs, just up and down hills in the house. And uh, it, was a, it was a very old, very tired uh, house. But because of its age, it was called the Heritage House. And it had things in the house that dated to the original stuff. And so the Park and Rec District owned the house. And they just wanted someone to stay in this house so that squatters wouldn't kind of move in and vandalize it. And uh, it had had like wiring stolen out of it, all those kinds of things. And so, so we found out about this place. We needed a place to live and we were staying there. Really, they only said two things. One, um, you know, here's the rent. And two, don't do anything to the house because some of the stuff is original. And so we, you know, eventually their plan was to kind of make it into a place where you can go visit and do some things too. So Braden's about four years old. 
And uh, I am uh, watching him, so I'm doing my dad duties. I've got ESPN on. He's being quiet, so who cares? <clears throat> right? Maybe a half or three hours goes by. Um, <laughs> and I think, I should check on my son and just make sure he's still alive in the house somewhere. And I walk. Uh, now, the, this house didn't have a lot of bedrooms. They didn't build a lot of bedrooms back then. So we just kind of had a curtain pulled through uh, one of the living rooms to make an extra bedroom there. So I walk through the curtain, and I walk into the master bedroom to see that my son is an artist. And I didn't realize it. And he has, for a long time now, been coloring with Sharpies all over the bedroom. All of the furniture is colored. All of the walls have designs and pictures on it. All of the vents are colored in. It is a mess. I may or may not have lost my mind. And I remember just thinking, clean this up. And then realizing there is no way that a four-year-old is going to be able to clean the mess that is before me right now. As a matter of fact, if you Google, how do I get permanent marker off a 150-year-old sheetrock, it's not <laughs> our walls, it's not even sheetrock back then, uh, you're probably not going to get a solution. <laughs> so we did some damage to the Heritage House that day. But we've all been a part of big messes. Maybe you have fun stories of messes you've been a, a part of. And, and here's the thing. Today, I want to talk to people who a particular group, because there's a lot of messes. There's messes that happen and we walk into it and they're not our mess, but we help. There's messes that happen because people that we're with cause a mess and it's not our fault. There's messes that happen because we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and those messes occur. But if I'm honest, if I'm telling you the truth, most of the messes that I experience are my fault. Most of the messes that I experience are my fault. And so today I want to talk to people who maybe like me, if you look back at your life and you look through some of the messes you've been through, you would say, honestly, most of the messes that I experience, if I get down to the core, now I may have played the blame game somewhere along the way, but if I get down to the core, most of the messes I've experienced or am experiencing are my fault. And here's how I know this, because somewhere along the way, there was a moment where I could have hit stop but instead I kept going. Somewhere along the way, there was a moment where I went, this isn't a very good idea. Oh, well. And I went ahead and did the thing that I should have done. Somewhere along the way, there was a voice, a parent's voice, a friend's voice, a pastor's voice, somebody's voice that got into my ear and said, don't go this way, do that thing. And I thought, nah, I'm gonna go ahead and go this way and do that thing. And then I found myself in a mess. And I found myself in a mess. Here's the problem. Have you ever found yourself in a mess so big that you weren't sure you could clean it up all by yourself? Because that's who I want to talk to today. Some of us have been in some messes and we look around and just like my son Braden at four years old, there was no way he could clean up that mess by himself. There was no hope. I couldn't clean up that mess. A blowtorch was not going to clean up that mess. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Here's one of the cool truths that we recognize. If you're a Jesus person, if you're a church person, if you've been going to church for a while, here's a truth that you know and you recognize because of the scriptures. You recognize that this is the story, that our mess is one of the things that has the potential to bring God near to us. And this is really good news. 
We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to take you to what is the most famous scripture in the Bible. Um, it's John 3, 16. And you've read this before. You've heard this before. Your, your house growing up may have had this on the wall. Maybe you've seen this crocheted. It was on a shirt. It was on a sweater. It was on a bumper sticker. So you know this verse. You've heard it even if you weren't a church person. And it goes a little something like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal Life. Now, this is a powerful scripture. It's amazing. It's encouraging. It's exciting because it says something about the nature of God. The first thing it says about the nature of God is that he loves, but not just that he loves, that he loves in a measurable quantity. It's not just a general amount of love. I really enjoy the fact that Jesus articulated this and John wrote it down. He didn't just say God loved the world. He said God so loved the world. You know, I play a little game with my kids all the time, and um, this is just kind of funny, but, but I'll do this with my hands, and I'll say, hey, does dad love you this much? They're like, no. Like, does dad love you this much? No. Does dad love you this? No. Dad, yeah. Right? And they'll get excited, and it's just like the thing, right? And we just do it in the house all the time, and especially when I need them to know that I love them because they probably did something bad. And so <laughs> I need to recalibrate how much does dad love you, right? But, but I love this picture that Jesus gives of God's love. It's not just love. Like, just enough to keep you going. He so loved the world. So Jesus says there's an amount of love, there's a quantity of love, and it's an abundant, extravagant amount. It's so much. Then he says that love has a direction, has a target, and it lands on that target. And that target is the world. Now, we get lost in the verbiage and that language of the world, because what does that mean? Does he love the earth, like the trees and, you know, the dirt and the water? And what does he love when he loves the world? And we recognize that's not what he loves. What he's saying is, I love mankind and people and individuals. Now, that gets really exciting because there's a ton of love that is available to people. But this gets a little bit better because the context of this is clear that he's talking about people who don't have it all together. If they had it all together, he wouldn't need to send his son for them to go get them. So he's pointing his love, his extravagant love at people, but specifically he's pointed at people who are a mess. So you could say it this way, for God so loved the mess that is us. God so loved the mess that is us that he gave his one and only son that whoever, wouldn't, whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have ever lasting life. Now here's what's great. I really love this verse. It's a great verse. Everybody should know this verse. What we do too often is we miss the next verse because the next verse gives some picture of what that love looks like. The next words out of Jesus's mouth, verse 17, is this, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now this is powerful. If we just established that the world is people and the people are messy, that God sent his son for them because he loves them, then we gotta say God didn't send his son into the world here to condemn the world, so the world is the location, to condemn all of us, but to save all of us through him. Now, here's the thing that's crazy. We have a really hard time receiving this part. That's why we don't read it all the time, put it on the t-shirts. That Jesus's mission was not to come down here and condemn. His job wasn't, because we think, when we think of God, that his primary role is to be holy, perfect, and good, so his job is to help us get behavior that looks more like him. 
But that's not the picture that Jesus paints. When he says, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, he didn't send him down here to say, hey, knock it off. That's what condemnation looks like, right? Condemnation looks like, hey, I know what you're doing. Stop doing it. I know what you're doing. You're a this. I know what you're doing. You're a that. Stop being a that. Don't do that. Be a that, right? We're gonna get to some of that. But the purpose in the plan was not condemnation. It's never been condemnation. Some of us have had a hard time coming to church and being in churches because you've heard a lot of things that have sounded like condemnation coming from microphones like this, from guys like me standing in places like this. And I'm just pointing you to the scriptures that says the mission was not condemnation. It was a rescue mission, but it was not condemnation. As a matter of fact, Jesus articulated the mission time and time and time again. He often walked into very messy situations with a very simple offer, a very simple invitation. His invitation was always, follow me, follow me, follow me. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to put a very simple offer on the table. Hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come be with me. Now, here's the thing. There's a tension that gets into us here because religion and Jesus don't always line up when it comes to this idea of what is the purpose of Jesus. Religion likes behavior modification. It likes law. Here's the law. You behave this way, you're good. You behave this way, you're bad. I can tell if I'm on this side of the good line or this side of the good line, and I can point at someone on the other side and point at their stuff. That's what religion does to us. Religion brings structure. Religion brings law and it brings rules. Now, not all laws and rules are bad. We're gonna get there, but that's the heart of religion. Jesus didn't have that heart when he showed up. His heart was always come and follow me. Now, he knew that if you followed him, you'd learn what it was like to be him and that that was a better path for you and that you would become more and more like him the longer you followed him. Just like you got friends. You got relationships with people that you hang out with. And pretty soon you find yourselves using mannerisms that didn't used to be your mannerisms. You use mannerisms that are your friend's mannerisms. You start saying phrases that I never said that phrase before. And then suddenly you realize, oh, I said that phrase because Jason says that phrase. I've been hanging out with Jason all the time and he always says that. Now I say that. Why? Because the more you follow, the more you become like the one you follow. But the invitation was always to follow. So I'm going to give you three stories today of Jesus interacting with incredibly messy people. And I want you to see the heart of Jesus in each of these situations, because I think it's going to challenge some of our paradigms of what it means to follow Jesus. The first story is in Matthew chapter 9. I'm in Matthew chapter 9. Now, I love Matthew, the book of Matthew, because it was written by a guy named Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, the guy named Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter nine tells his story about when he met Jesus. So it's pretty cool. He met Jesus and he wrote his whole story of Jesus. And in the middle of it, he writes, and this is what it was like when I met Jesus. Only he writes in third person here. He doesn't say, hey, this is me. He just allows us to figure out and do the math there. So in Matthew chapter nine, we meet Matthew. Now Matthew's life is a mess. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, 
If you've been with us for a while, every once in a while I talk about tax collectors because I just think we miss how big of a deal it was to be a tax collector at that time. These are the most hated guys in the community, bar none. People hate tax collectors more than they hate the IRS today. It's not even close. Here's why they hated the tax collectors. Tax collectors were your neighbors, your family members, people you were related to that you might have grown up with who when they came into their wealth decided a way to increase their wealth would be to purchase the right from Rome to be the local tax collector for this community. So what Rome would do is they would look for someone and they would say, okay, Kevin, why don't you take this job? Kevin would buy it. He'd become the tax collector for his area. He would be in charge of that. Then Rome would assign him soldiers to enforce the taxes, right? So what Kevin was required to do then is get a certain amount of tax for Rome, but he could ask for and demand any amount he wanted from anybody. And if they didn't pay, he had an enforcement, a brute squad that could go and punish them. So he literally paid for the right to rob his neighbor's regularly and get rich at their expense. So you have to imagine this picture. Matthew's at a tax collector booth. There's a line. People are coming to pay their taxes and he's sizing them up. He's going, oh, this guy can afford a little bit more. Uh, they probably can't. Oh yeah, he definitely had a good heart. And he's measuring how much he's gonna rob each individual that comes up. And if that person comes up and says, here's my taxes and he goes, oh no, you know, you owe $50 more. Well, I don't have $50 more. Really? Okay, well then you're in jail. Wait, I'm going to jail? I don't owe that much. Nope, you owe that much. And then now your wife owes $50. And if she can't pay it, she's going to owe 100 or she's going to go into jail. That's who the tax collectors were. You have to get this picture of how messy Matthew's life is. He's hated by his neighbors, rejected by his family. He has to have a goon squad of bodyguards or people will kill him on the street. Jesus walks right up to Matthew, a tax collector, and says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. I don't know, the scripture doesn't paint the picture, but I can imagine the rest of the disciples like, seriously? <laughs> we gotta bring this guy? The goon squad's gonna come? Like, this is the worst guy to walk up to Jesus and say, follow me. This is not helpful at all. Listen, at least I was a reputable fisherman, okay? We can't have this clown with us. And Jesus says, follow me. And then look what Jesus does next, verse two. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, are you kidding me? To go have dinner at Matthew's house is absolutely insane. As a reputation for a reputable rabbi and teacher to do, to go to a tax collector's house is awful. And look at who comes. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And Matthew's crew is who shows up. Now, here's a funny thing to, to just notice. And I've said this before, but I want you to catch this. Every time tax collectors are mentioned, sinners gets broken out into its own category right? They don't leave sinners and tax collectors in the same category. Sinners would be offended if you called them a tax collector, all right? That's how much they hated the tax collectors. So let me paint this picture for you. And if you have your Bibles, you can go through it. I'm not going to read out the whole story. It will be here forever. But Jesus is having dinner with Matthew at Matthew's house. And who shows up at a dinner at Matthew's house? Matthew's peers, because he has no friends. It's going to be other sinners and tax collectors. That's his crew. And Jesus is there, and he's partying with them. This is the crew that really parties, not Christian parties, okay? This is the crew that really parties hard. 
and he's hanging out with them. And the other disciples are there. And you can just imagine, they're like, oh my goodness, what are we doing in this environment? And the other religious people, they won't go in there. They're not willing to get that close to Matthew. So they're outside and they're looking through the windows. I can imagine they're just peeking through the windows. Jesus is in there. Can you believe it? And they're like, and one of the disciples comes over and he's like, why does your master hang out in this kind of environment? This is the party, right? This is what's going on here. Some of you finally got with me here on just how the situation was. And Jesus overhears it over the crowd. And he's like, listen up. It's not the healthy who need the doctor but the sick. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm gonna walk right into your mess, Matthew. You come and follow me. Matthew does follow him, becomes one of the 12 disciples and writes the gospel of Matthew. That's insane. That's an amazing story. The other tax collector he runs into, I won't take you there, is a guy named Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus, if you went to Sunday school growing up, you know he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He was short. And Jesus is coming by and they can't see him because, you know, he's short. So he climbs up a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus, that gets his attention. I don't think he's ever seen a tax collector in a tree. And so he's like, I got to talk to that guy. He gets over there. The scripture doesn't say this, but I imagine his bodyguards are around the tree, making sure that no one gets in. And Jesus says, hey, come down. And he comes down and he says, let's go eat at your house. Again, everyone's floored. And he has a conversation with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, at the end of the conversation, says, I am going to pay back everyone I've robbed with interest that's beyond what the law requires. He has a radical transformation of heart. But again, Jesus walks right into the mess and invites someone into his world who's messy. Sometimes it's hard to invite someone into our world who's messy. We know this. It's hard to invite someone into our world that's messy, but Jesus' recommendation, his, his constant call is to say, hey, come and be with me. Come and be with me. Now, some of us are in such a mess right now, we shouldn't invite other people into our mess right now because we're still walking through it. But those of us that have been walking with Jesus for a little while, we know we got our messes too, but we, if we're gonna live like Jesus, have to learn how to invite people into our world who are messy. Who are messy. I remember I was youth pastoring back in uh, Spokane, and uh, I'll use a different name. We'll call her Sarah. I had a girl who, she was a church kid. And uh, she had grown up in church. She was a good, you know, little church kid. And she hit high school and she went wild. Some of you church kids know this story. And she decided she was gonna do all of the things that she was under an umbrella of laws. And she was like, I'm gonna break all of those things. So Sarah went out of control a long, long ways, running from her family, running from the law, obviously running from the Lord, um, spent most of her high school years doing that. And uh, as it got towards about her senior year, I had been in circles that had overlapped with her from time to time. And her dad asked me, hey, could you meet with Sarah? And I was like, I'm kind of afraid of Sarah. Her world is so messy. And here's what happens. High schoolers, if you're in here or you've been through high school, you got to know something. Your friends rat you out. They don't keep your confidences in high school. They don't know how to do it. They just don't. And they tell their youth pastor all of your stuff. And so I'm hearing stories about Sarah for like years of all the things that are going on in her, crazy things that are going on with her. And uh, some of them, you know, just like any good story, it gets better over time. And so I don't really know the truth or not the truth, but I got a picture of Sarah in my head and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna meet with her somewhere public. Like there's gotta be lots of people around because I just don't know she's gonna scream. She doesn't, does she wanna meet with me? Like what, like why am I, you know, so, so, one of those wild things you do, I sit down and I'm, I'm in a conversation with Sarah at a table. I just, hey, how you doing? 
and she's not making eye contact with me. And I just begin to ask her how, how her life's going and what's going on. And was not very much into the conversation before her eyes start welling with tears. And she looks at me and she says, you know, I was a church kid here. I said, yeah, I know that. She goes, there is nobody in this place who wants me here. All of my friends think that I'm the worst and I don't feel like I could ever come here. And I, my heart just melted. And I was like, listen, you may not think, you may not think the big room is safe, but you can come into my room. Here's what we're gonna do. You come every week and just hang out in my office. And if you wanna come to church, you can come to church. If you don't, you can just hang out. You can hang out. You can. So I started giving her things to do. She wasn't good at anything. So she would, <laughs> she would get projects and then I would have, that's why I changed her name. I'd have other people come through and redo the projects after she did them. But, uh, but at least she just felt like I could come and do something, right? And she'd file things. She did little painting projects. She did little things. Just, she just kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And, uh, and I would talk with her and, and I never walked right into her mess. I just said, hey, just come and be safe. You can just be here. And after... Weeks and weeks and weeks. She was in the office, and I think she was painting something. Actually, she was doing, I just given her a project, and she turns to me, and she goes, can I talk to you about what I've been doing? I said, yeah. And she sat down, and we talked through her mess, and she prayed and gave her life back to Jesus. And, and she never wanted to go back into the big room again, right? That was, that was like she was done with that thing. But she ended up following Jesus. She ended up actually marrying a pastor. She's a pastor's wife, a teacher. She's doing great. And, but here's the thing. She just needed someone to invite her in while she was a mess. Someone who wasn't going to be afraid of her mess. I'm going to tell you, I was afraid of her mess at first. I was like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But when I saw that look in her eyes, I saw that she said, man, nobody wants me here. I was like, no, you're wanted. Sometimes we just got to realize that people need the value. I didn't have to point out all the dumb things she was doing. She knew all the dumb things she was doing. She didn't need my help figuring that out. She didn't need my help figuring out that this was destroying her life. She just needed to know she had some value and somebody loved and cared about her. Sometimes it's hard for us to do that. Jesus, John chapter four, Another story of interacting with a messy person. So, so he interacts with Matthew and he interacts with Zacchaeus. He interacts with these tax collectors who are messy. Their lives are messy. Their relational collateral damage is messy. They're in a party culture. They're serial manipulators and abusers of the system. They've managed to get fat off of the, off of the wealth of others. And, and, and Jesus walks right up to him and says, hey, come and spend time with me. John chapter four, we meet another woman who's a mess. And if you're, you're a Jesus person, you've heard this story before. Jesus is traveling and he's in kind of unfriendly territory. He's on kind of a border between uh, Samaria and uh, 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 Jerusalem. He's on his way. And, and they're in the desert kind of area and they need provisions. They need water and food. And so they go to this ancient site where there's a well. Jacob's well is there, a historical place where they could get access to water. And the disciples and him show up there and the well doesn't have a bucket to draw water from. And so Jesus stops and he rests there and the rest of the disciples go out to kind of get provisions and secure that for him. And, and he's just hanging out. Now it's the middle of the day, it's hot. It's a rough time to be out. And this well is a, a place where a local town, a local village, they, they draw their water and their life from this well. But you would do this just like they would do if you needed to draw water from a well every day to, get, to survive, but it was super hot there. You'd do it early in the morning or late at night when the sun was down. 
So most of the community is gone. It's empty there. But in the middle of the day, in the middle of the heat, a woman shows up at this well with a bucket to come and get water. Now, there's a reason that she's there this time of day. The only reason to be there this time of day is you don't want to see any other people. You don't want to come when everybody else is coming to the well. This is off hours. Nobody goes to the well in the middle of the day like this. And Jesus sees this woman and has an interaction with her and says, hey, why don't you give me some water from this well? And she has a reaction to him. In John chapter four, verse nine, it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am Samaritan. Now here's the first thing she points out. She goes immediately to a racial divide that they've experienced. See, for generations, the Samaritans and the Jewish culture have hated each other. They fought, they've had little battles and wars, they've discriminated against one another. The Jews felt like the Samaritans were a mixed race, kind of abomination that they had disobeyed God and they shouldn't exist and treated them like they shouldn't exist. And here's the thing you know, that when cultures collide and one of them kind of manipulates or abuses another culture for a long period of time, it can create some tension. And so she looks at him and says, um, excuse me, our cultures shouldn't get along. Then she goes one step further and says, I'm a Samaritan woman. Um, excuse me, not only should our cultures not get along, our genders don't get along in this culture. And so you're crossing too many boundaries, even talking to me. I'm not sure I feel about this. And here's what's Interesting, it says, for the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Here's what's really interesting. I want you to catch this. Her gender, her ethnicity, the other thing that's kind of implied in this story is her socioeconomic situation. The Samaritans didn't have the wealth that the Jews had. They were just looked down upon uh, from a socioeconomic picture. None of those things, guys, were her mess. You need to catch that. Jesus is about to speak right to her mess and right to her need, but her ethnicity is not her mess. Her gender is not her mess. Her social, socioeconomic situation, those things are not her mess. If they were her mess, Jesus would have dove right into that area. He doesn't even address that piece. She just says, I'm not sure that you want to get into the middle of my mess. If you skip ahead to verse 13, it says, Jesus answered. <laughs> so she has a conversation with him about getting water. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water is gonna get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He's saying, hey, I know this is about getting a drink, but I want you to understand, I have something to offer you that will actually give you real life. That's bigger than what water can do for you. And I love the woman's response because she's practical. She says, the woman said to him, uh, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Remember, she's out in the middle of the day in the sun, climbing up a hill, going into the well, pulling water up out of the well and hiking back in the heat every day with her water. She wants from him something that will make her physical life easier and she's about to get something from him that will have eternal implications and make her entire eternity better. So Jesus said, uh, <laughs> your hard work that you're experiencing here, that's not the, the real mess either. So the next comment he says is, oh, he told her, verse 16, go call your husband 
and come back. I love this. Jesus is strategic. He's about to walk right into her actual mess. And it's normal for him to have asked this, right? The cultural norms of talking to a woman alone um, on the top of a hill here where there's, you know, there's not her husband present and interacting with her and asking something for her. It's normal for him to have said, hey, go get your husband and bring him back because that's how we'll do business here and I'll get some water and we'll move on. And so it was a normal thing to say, but it was a loaded comment because look what happens next. She says, uh, I have no husband, she, re- she replied. And Jesus said, uh, yeah, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. Now listen, five husbands is a lot today. Five husbands was a whole lot back then. Five husbands is a lot of husbands. And listen to this, the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true when she said, I have no husband. (laughs) Now notice, again, her gender, her ethnicity, her socioeconomic standing, those were not her mess. Her mess was about her life choices. Her mess were things that she had done, decisions she had made, a position that she had put her life into. She'd been through five husbands, was working her way up to number six. There's a pattern in her life that is not healthy. She's looking for life from something. And this is the stigma, the reason that she would be at the well in the middle of the afternoon, not wanting to see the other people in town. There's a stigma that would go with this in her culture. So Jesus goes right to the heart and says, what you said is is quite true. And then I love her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been around someone who just seems to have that discernment and is just like, oh, I know what your problem is. And you're like, oh, get away from me. Don't tell me my problems. I know my problems, right? But he does. He's just like, here's your problem. And she goes, wow, you're a prophet. And then listen what she says. She says, our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says, so she goes, oh, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped here, but you guys think you're supposed to worship somewhere else. And she's like, I know there's some rules. I'm not sure how the rules work. And she goes, and Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying they have the true story. You can get it from them. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit And in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's the thing. Jesus focuses her on relationship. She starts getting to, hey, there's some rules about how worship's supposed to work. And I get you're a prophet. I get, you know, that my life's a mess. And one of these days, I'll get up on the mountain, and I'll do the thing I'm supposed to do. And he says, no, 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 no. You got this twisted. God's spirit. And worship with him, authentic worship with him is connecting to him wherever you are right now. There's not some things you have to do and then. There's not some stuff you have to do and then. And the the woman's response is, I know the Messiah is coming, called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus is like, you got him. I who speak to you am he. I love this. She's like, that was kind of complicated. You just implied that all the things I think that religion has taught me about how to behave so I can get access to God are not the things that the actual thing has to do with my spirit connecting with God's spirit and observing that in truth. That's a lot. I'm sure someone else will explain it. And he goes, no, 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 you're missing it. I'm explaining it to you right now. Now, I love this because she goes back and she gets the whole town saved. It's totally awesome. I also love this because Jesus speaks right to where she's at. He doesn't avoid the topic. Her issue is she's got five husbands and working on number six. So he goes right to it. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't condemn her. 
He doesn't shame her. He doesn't try to rehabilitate her behaviorally. She just says, there is a relationship that's a spiritual relationship that requires truth that's available to you right now. And it changes her entire world. This is amazing because prior to this, the picture everyone had about God was he's really concerned about how we behave. This is behavior management. And if I blow it, if I make mistakes, if I don't do what he says, if I get it out from underneath the umbrella of his laws, lightning bolts, floods, earthquakes, all those things are gonna happen. I will have displeased God. And then here's Jesus painting an entirely different picture of God. And here's what's important for us to recognize. If you wanna know what the Father is like, then you need to look at Jesus. If you wanna know what the Father is like, then you need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus says time and time again, I only do what the Father's asked me to do. I and the Father are one. I say what the Father wants me to say. God wanted us to have a picture of what that looks like. Here's the thing. It doesn't shock Jesus when people mess up. He expects us to be messy. People make messes. He knows that. We're the ones who get shocked when someone messes up. We're the one who gets surprised. We're the one who starts clicking on the articles to read about the thing that the person that messed up, you're like, oh, I can't believe how bad they messed up. We're the one who are like, I'm so shocked. I never thought they would do that. We're the ones who get shocked when people mess up. God never gets shocked when people mess up. Why? Because people make messes. So I had a dog once that was a good dog. And then I had another dog. When my good dog passed away, I got my another dog. My another dog was a nightmare. But when I got her, she was a puppy. She had a little chocolate lab and she was all fun and games and stuff. And she would drive me crazy. She would chew everything. She would destroy everything. She made a mess everywhere. She ate everything. She ripped everything open. And I remember, I was so frustrated. I was like, oh, why can't she just be like, oh, that's right, she's a puppy. This is what puppies do. She's being a puppy. Why am I upset with her for being a puppy? That's what they do. So I've been coaching uh, a bunch of Little League Baseball now, a couple different leagues, and, and one of my favorite ones to coach is the T-Ballers. My, my daughter's a T-Baller, and we had a game on Friday, and, and I'm out there coaching, and our team's out there playing, and we're playing against another team. And this other team, I'm just going to, this other team, they get their kids out into the field, and I'm over on first base, I'm first base coach. I have one job, run to first, run to first, run to first, run to first, run to second, run to second, run to second, run to second. I just do that for a whole game, right? That's all I do. So I'm there, I'm ready to do my job. And I look out and these three coaches are out in the field and they're trying to get their, their team, the T-ball team to pay attention. And I look out and at one point before the first batter is up, there's no less than four kids who are just laying down in the grass. <laughs> Right? They're like making snow angels in the grass, grass angels, whatever. They're just doing that, right? And these coaches are like, come on, get up, get up. And I look out, nobody has a glove on. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody's like, and, and I'm just, and, I, and I'm thinking that, you know, I'm having this moment where I'm just like, why can't they get these kids under control? And then I go, oh, that's right, they're five. And five-year-olds are gonna act like five-year-olds. It's just what they're gonna do. And people are gonna be messy. It's what we're gonna do. It's who we're gonna be. And it doesn't shock God when we're messy. People who don't know Jesus don't act like Jesus. It's not a shocker for him. It's not a shocker at all. So if you wanna know what the Father is like, Look at Jesus, and here's Jesus showing compassion and being loving and demonstrating what a father's love looks like. And Next story is in John chapter 8. 
It's the last story. Almost done. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, verse 1, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, this is important. I want you to catch this. He's at church, and he's teaching at church. And it says, at dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. Verse 3, it says, then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, catch this, brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now listen, it's church and it's packed. Jesus is there. And you can imagine the commotion, the doors burst open or the scene, you hear the rumblings and screaming. And here comes a group of men and they have a woman with them and they're dragging her to the temple courts. She's been caught, not found out that she was adulterous. She's been caught in the act of adultery. I want you to just get a visual of how sensitive this moment must be. I don't know what state of dress she was in, doesn't say, but I can't imagine it was pretty. Imagine the terror this woman must have experienced in the middle of her most intimate moments and maybe deepest, darkest rebellion. A door kicks open and men storm in and grab her to make an example out of her. She knows that in the law of Moses, it is permissible for them to throw rocks at her until she dies. That's the punishment for this crime. They drag her from whatever place she's at. They don't say anything about the fella. They drag her from this place where she's been found and they bring her to church of all places. Some of you are like, I got some issue with church. Imagine her issue. They bring her to church of all places and they drag her to the front. And not only is it church, it's packed. Jesus, the most well-known teacher at the time, the most famous celebrity teacher of the moment is there. Crowds are there. He's teaching. And they drag her to the front. Imagine her world falling apart as she waits for the punishment that must be coming, the shame and waves of shame. I think about, I'm going to get emotional, but we don't know her story. We don't know, you know, for years I always thought she was just a young woman. She could have not been a young woman. She could have kids, a family, be part of the community. I don't know her story. I just know that she's been drugged, dragged into an impossible situation while in the middle of her weakest moment. Imagine in the middle of your weakest moment, someone grabbing you and dragging you into the front of the crowd. And here's Jesus, and he's teaching. Sunday, they're getting their church on. I'm just, it's not, but. It says, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, verse four, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It says, Jesus bent down and stirred and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, this is beautiful. He bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger in the dirt. And we don't know what he's doing. I, I have no hidden insight into this. We'll never know. Someday we'll be in heaven. We'll be like, Jesus, what were you writing? I heard one story. I really like it. it, it there's nothing in the scripture to imply it, but I like it. So this is how I visualize it. I heard one story a pastor shared. And he said, he said, I like to think that he was writing down the names of the guys that drug her in. And then next to there, he's getting ready to write down what their sins are, right? So that their stuff can be laid. I, that's what I like to think because I, I like my Jesus that way. But, uh, <laughs> but we have nothing in the scripture. That's just conjecture. And, and, uh, but it's fun because it you know, gives you some visual. It says he, be, he began to write on the ground with his finger. 
It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, hey, if any of you is without sin, if any of you doesn't have a mess, who is my mess-free person in the room? If any of you does not have a mess, let them be the first, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and he kept on riding on the ground. Imagine this picture, it's packed. And I imagine the silence that's over the crowd as they're trying to hear Jesus's word. Imagine this woman, she's been just humiliated. She's probably sobbing. She's waiting for death. And here's this angry group of people. And Jesus just says, okay, so the one who doesn't have a mess, you're the one, go ahead, throw a rock. And then he turns away. Verse nine, it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, they had more mess. <laughs> Until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Listen to this. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What a powerful picture of Jesus right in the middle of someone's mess with all of the opportunity to condemn all of the leverage the religious leverage to go ahead and drop the hammer and he says that's not the business I'm in how many times does he have to say he's not in the condemnation business that's not what he's here for. That's not the purpose. As a matter of fact, in, in the very next verse where we always stop the story right there and we don't keep reading, he addresses the crowd again. And listen to what he says in John 8, 12. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Imagine the crowd is just stunned. He hasn't condemned her. In fact, they've heard him say the words, I don't condemn you. They've got to be confused. Is it non-condemnation? Is that an endorsement? What is this? He didn't, he said, then he said, go leave your life of sin. Okay, so what is he asking for? And he says, listen, here's how this looks. I'm the light of the world. Your mess has put you in a dark place. And you know this. I've been in a mess, you've been in a mess. They put you in a dark place. And Jesus is saying, when you find yourself in a dark place, I'm the light of the world. You wanna find your way out? You wanna find the path out? You wanna find the steps that will get you out of this mess? I'm the light of the world. Why? How does that work? Well, whoever follows me, and here it is again, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, there's a path that's better than that path. There's a way that's better than that way. And I came here so that that path would be illuminated, would be lit up for you so that you could make the distinction because I know you're gonna be messy. I know this whole experience is gonna be messy, but you've gotta know that there's a path, there's a way out of this. And so I'm going to paint that picture for you. I'm the light of the world. Follow that light to life. Can you imagine the crowd just stunned? at his response. When we get into a mess, we think sometimes of God, <laughs> I heard this illustration, I really like it. We think sometimes of God, like we want God to behave like AAA, right? I'm in a mess, I'm broke down. My car is on fire. I'm on the side of the road, my tire's flat. I need some help. Did I pay my dues? Yes, cool, come and rescue me. And then God comes and rescues us, tows us to safety. We high five God. We're like, thanks. Now get out of my life until I'm in a mess again. But I'll keep your card in my pocket in case I'm in trouble. And we think God should work like AAA. We want him on our speed dial for when we get into a mess. 
And Jesus breaks that whole picture. He says that God loves us like a father. Now, let me give you a little truth. As a father, some of your fathers, mothers, whatnot, as a father, as a parent, I don't want a AAA relationship with my kids. I don't want them to call me, come on, you know this is true, when they're just in trouble and they need me to rescue them and then as soon as they feel safe, okay, now I don't need you anymore and then I'm out of their life until they're in the next mess. That's not the relationship I wanna have with my kids, not as a father. And if we feel like we would want a close, that doesn't mean don't call me when you're in trouble. Go ahead and call me when you're in trouble. I'm your father, I care. I'll be there. But that's not the relationship I wanna have with you. And here's Jesus painting us a picture of the father. And he's saying relationship is more important than behavior management. It's more important. My kids are bad. I don't suddenly not want relationship with them anymore. I want them even more and I want them closer. Why? Because I know that if they are walking with me, I can help them walk out of this. I want that for them. And here's the picture that God gives us. That relationship is more important to him than behavior management. He doesn't just leave us in the mess. He says, here's the way out. Come and follow me. Spend time with me. Learn how to get out of the mess. Again, he never says the mess isn't a mess. Sometimes we go to the other stream and we start saying, well, nothing's a mess then. No, it's a mess. He doesn't compromise the truth that a mess is a mess. He never says that. He just says, I didn't come to condemn you in the middle of your mess. I just came to give you a light and a way out. Come follow me. Come follow me. He lays out a road model, a road map. He modeled a life. <laughs> I like it when he said it this way at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 7. He's just got done kind of painting what a life could look like that followed him. He talks about things like, like being meek and being the salt and light of the earth. And he says, listen. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, and you've heard this before, and he puts them into practice. He's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. He says, if you hear these words and you do them, if you hear these words and you follow me, if you hear this truth and you walk after me, that's how you get wise. That's how you build a foundation for your life. That's how you put your home and your life on the rock because the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet that house didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, you're like a foolish man who built your house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. What is he saying? He's saying, we're all gonna experience the mess. But if you follow me, if you hear my words and you put them into practice, they will create for you a foundation for your life that will help you sustain and sustain the storms of life and the messes that come. And that's what I came to give you a path out, a light out, a way to build a foundation that will sustain you. And here's Jesus just being honest, saying, listen, there's gonna be some mess, but you can come and follow me. So last, we're almost done. How does Jesus address the mess in us? We're talking about the fact that we all have mess and most of the messes that we've experienced, they're our fault. How does Jesus address the mess that's in us? He does some very simple things. We saw it through all these stories. We saw it with each individual he interacted to, interacted with. And he was very, very simple. His first thing is he just invites us to follow him. For some of us, that's all you needed to hear today. 
The answer wasn't have all your stuff together. The answer wasn't figure it all out. The answer wasn't you have to uh, get behavior managed before you can do anything. The answer was you have permission right where you're at today to start following Jesus. He's the light. And he'll set you on a path that will help you walk through the mess and address the messes in your life. His invitation was always come and follow me. Some of you have never heard anyone from the front right here talk like that. Everything, whether it was your own filter or their words, whatever it was, came out as a sense of condemnation and shame and guilt and tried to manipulate you into behavior management. And listen, I'm not in the behavior management business because Jesus isn't in the behavior management business. I'm in the truth and spirit business and the truth and grace business. Doesn't mean I endorse everything. I don't endorse everything. I don't expect you to endorse everything. But I had to learn to just follow Jesus. When I started following Jesus, I didn't have all the pieces right away. I was a mess. I continue to be a mess. I get new pieces all the time. The further and farther and faster I follow him, more stuff comes out and more stuff gets squeezed out of me. And I spend more time with him and I become more like him. And I move out of messes that had haunted my life for, for, for all of my life and into my new messes that get to get me to the next mess that gets me to the foundation that is Jesus. And I just keep on walking with him. And that was the invitation. If I had to have it all figured out, I never would have made it. No one would. First thing he does is invite us to follow. The second thing he does is he doesn't condemn. So if you think that condemnation has to be present in order for someone to change their life, it doesn't work that way. Listen, I heard this and this is just so true. I'm gonna be careful here. This is a little loaded, so I just want you to catch my heart, okay? Catch the truth of this. There's a thing that gets said sometimes. It's like, well, you're only sorry because you got caught, right? You're only changing because you got caught. That's not true repentance. That's not true sorry. It only counts if you didn't get caught yet and you came clean. And can I just tell you that that's nonsense according to the Bible? It feels really good to say it because I'm mad. Right? Feels really good in the moment to say it. But everyone here got caught. Let me take you through the scriptures of people that got caught. David got caught. Moses got caught. All of these people got caught. Right? Their stuff didn't come out until they got caught. They got caught. And I've, just in years of ministry, I've seen people get caught and change. I've seen people get caught and not change. I've seen people come forward right before they got caught. I'm gonna change. They're just as manipulative as if they got caught. Condemnation isn't the answer. It doesn't work. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't heal and it's not Jesus. He just doesn't do that thing. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, here's the next piece, because it's important. He also doesn't compromise. While he doesn't condemn, he doesn't just suddenly say, hey, that thing you're doing, you know you shouldn't be doing, that you got out from underneath, that's cool. He doesn't do that either. It's not a compromise. He doesn't compromise. He tells Matthew, hey, come follow me. Matthew eventually becomes one of the 12 disciples, walks with Jesus, writes the, writes the gospel. He doesn't stay a tax collector. He changes in his life. He tells uh, Zac Zac Zacchaeus, right? Hey, come, I'm gonna eat with you. And Zacchaeus goes and changes all of his behavior. He, he does that because he wants to be more like Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey, it's cool. Keep on robbing, keep on cheating people, right? He tells the woman at the well, hey, there's a relationship you can have with God that is in truth. And she's already lying. I don't have a husband. You had five husbands. You can experience in a relationship with God that's rooted in truth. It's available for you. Truth is available for you. I'm not going to just say the thing that you're doing that's hurting your life is okay, but I'm not going to condemn you. That's not the answer. The answer is come follow me towards life. 
The last thing I want you to catch is he's compassionate all the way through. Every time he's compassionate. Every time he cares about the human, the soul, the life that's in front of him. Every time he values the person, he looks at them in their mess and says, you're my child and you're valuable and you matter and I came for you. You're the mission, not universal behavior management. You're the mission, you're the mission, you're the mission. Would you stand with me? We're gonna close. And I just wanna have an honest moment with you and then we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up. And for some of you, you've never heard Jesus kind of depicted this way or maybe you have, but it didn't make sense and you've heard too many different voices and, and you just had a picture that somehow this had to be about behavior management. There was gonna be a hook in here somewhere. I was gonna ask for a check or something. There was gonna be something, some manipulative piece in here. And I'm just telling you, that's not it. You get the same invitation that I got. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. I love you with a perfect father's love. You're wanted, you're desired. I care for you, you're not an accident. There's something more for you than what you've experienced. Come follow me, I'll take you there. And all the other messy things I leave behind as I walk towards Jesus. But he doesn't condemn me and he does it in love. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm not I'm gonna embarrass anybody or anything. I'm just, in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for privacy. And then if you're here, and you've just heard Jesus over and over again say, follow me, follow me, I don't condemn you. Follow me, follow me, I don't condemn you. Follow me, follow me, I don't condemn you. And you're like, that's the thing I need. And I haven't had that and I need it. I'm gonna invite you to just lift a hand and say, yeah, that's me. And then if you're in the room and you say, yeah, I've heard some version of that, but I've somehow mucked it all up and I'm stuck in a mess and I need to start following Jesus again, I'm gonna invite you to respond too. And then we're gonna pray and that's gonna be it. I'm not gonna put any pressure on you. I'm not gonna put any screws. And if you wanna come to the visitor's lunch and you haven't been to something like that, you're welcome to come. But so here's, that's what we're gonna do. So would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? No one's looking around. It's not embarrassing. It's not weird. And you're here and you would just say, hey, you know what? I need that story to be my story because the story I'm in right now isn't working out. And I'm hearing this story about Jesus. There's gonna be some truth. I'm gonna have to deal with things. He's not gonna just say everything I've been doing is okay. But this isn't about condemnation. It's about permission to just follow Jesus. And that's the invitation. For the son of God didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I tried everything else. So what have I got to lose? I'm gonna take a step of faith and just try this. And I'm gonna follow Jesus. And I don't know all the things that it's gonna mean, but today's gonna be the day. I'm gonna write it on my calendar. I'm gonna look back and say, that's the day I made a decision. Some things are gonna be different. It's gonna mess up my whole universe, but I'm gonna do it because there's gotta be more than this. And if that's who Jesus is, that's what I want. If that's you, would you just lift a hand and say, that's me. Nobody's looking around. Yeah, I see that hand. Yeah, I see that hand. Yeah, I see that hand. Mm-hmm. Good. Another moment. Yeah. Yeah. You can put those hands down. Maybe you've been in here and you've been in the church thing for a while and you've kind of, it just didn't take. <laughs> You didn't shock God with your mess. You didn't surprise God with your mess. He's not surprised that you're messy right now. And it's, today is just a day of saying, yeah, I need to recalibrate and start following God again. And that's you. You just lift a hand and say, yeah, that's me. I need to do that. Yeah, I see those hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, your word is so clear. Your promise is so clear that if we believe with a heart and confess with our mouth that your God will be saved. And it's not, there's not a, trick. There's not a hoodwink thing. And your invitation was always to come and follow. And God hands all over this room today saying that's their desire. And so we just verbalize that's our desire. We want to follow you out of our mess. 
onto a firm foundation towards the light that brings life. And I just pray in the name of Jesus, would you do what only you can do? Would you heal hearts, bodies, minds? Would you break bondage, change uh, lives, and, and God bring life in ways we could never imagine? I pray for each and everyone here that raised a hand. Would, they, would this be a moment for them of courage and strength, of stepping out in faith and saying, that's me, and I don't have to be who I've always been. The promise of the gospel is that you make all things new. You're in the redemption business. So we don't leave this place the same. I pray in the name of Jesus. We thank you. Amen and amen.